And then the Lord of the Lord, the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, Then what then? is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear. And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, It is not true. Though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, yes? And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. That's the word of the Lord. Now we have been walking through the book of 1 Samuel. This will be our episode 32 is what this is. This is episode 32 of our walk through 1 Samuel. And we have seen God's providence at play, right? That's like the theme of 1 Samuel, the providence of God. God works all things together. All of this is happening according to the plan of God. In Genesis 49, uh, we saw uh, Abraham speaking to his children, and his children um, are blessed and they are cursed according to the plan of of God, right? And Samuel's tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, they are cursed. Excuse me, it's not Abraham who does the cursing. It is Jacob who is named Israel who does the cursing and the blessing. And he's doing so according to the plan of God, according to the, the word of the Lord. And, and Saul's tribe, Benjamin, is cursed. Uh, the tribe of Benjamin is referred to as a ravenous wolf. And so everything that Saul is doing up to this point, like it doesn't catch God by surprise whatsoever. God has been working this thing out. God foretold told what would be happening. Uh, God even said during the ministry of Samuel that Saul would come and he would do exactly the opposite of what the law required of the king. So nothing we're reading here catches God by surprise. Yet in this passage of scripture, much like the previous passage of scripture we were in, we see something in scripture that is, it's so difficult to reconcile from a human perspective, so difficult to reconcile with the providence of God and the sovereignty of God, like God's plan is perfect. Uh, God knows what he's doing. God is all good. He is working all things together and scripture makes these claims explicitly. Yet we get to a passage like today and one of the first things we read is God telling Samuel that God regrets making Saul king. And this word from the Hebrew can also be translated as God relented or God repented. And it can be translated in those ways in the English. And it is in different parts of the Old Testament. Like there are several passages where the Bible comes out and just says God regretted what he did. God repented of what he did. God relented of what he was doing. And my question is like, if God is so unchanging, God is so perfect and his plan is perfect. How can he be described in some instances in the Old Testament as regretting what he has done. How can we reconcile this in our minds? How can we believe that God is sovereign and perfect and works all things together and also believe that it's possible for God to regret or to change the way that he is thinking about something? Let's 
a little bit of a trick question, and I'll explain to you why as we get into this text. But I just I want to look at this text in three parts. First, we'll see verses 10 and 11, and we'll see God's regret, the, tr- the truth of the matter. God says, I regret making Saul king. Secondly, in verses 12 through 15, uh, we will see the human tendency to self-justify, to justify what we believe, to justify what we do, to justify our actions, to justify the way that we practice religion. And in verses 16 through 20, we, we will see defined explicitly for us what evil is according to God. And God will come out and he, and he will basically say, Saul is being evil, and we will learn what that means. And I think it will cause us some deep reflection this morning. So during this Christmas season, during this time of great joy, during this time of happiness, during this time of celebration, we're studying a text that is filled with much grief and sadness. Um, But this is where we are at as we are walking through Scripture. So uh, I, I apologize up front for being such a sad person this morning. That's why I had to dress a little bit more joyfully, a little bit more happily. Let's look at this passage together. God's regret, verses 10 and 11. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, so this is the word of the Lord. It's perfect. It is not a mistake. It is a word that God speaks to God's people through God's prophet. It is truthful because it comes from the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. Now here we see it. Up front and center and we're often reading through God's Bible and we run into difficult texts like this like the previous passage we were in if you didn't get to see that please go and look it up where God instructs Saul to go and kill all of the Amalekites men women children the king the livestock everything and and we talked about you know why God would give such an instruction and we took time two weeks ago to explain that it was a pretty difficult passage to look at because God's supposed to be a nice loving guy right and so we took time to look at that passage. Please go look it up if you didn't get a chance to do so or if you weren't here two weeks ago. And this passage, something strikes us that is, that is just as difficult, and it's the idea that God might even be able to regret anything that He has decided to do or repent of anything that He has decided to do or relent of anything that He has decided to do. And I just... I wonder what this means that God would regret something. As we have walked through 1 Samuel so far, we have, we have seen some characteristics about God on display for us to see, for us to witness through the story, through the narrative of 1 Samuel. And up front and center in 1 Samuel, the theme of 1 Samuel, the key point, if you will, of 1 Samuel is that God is sovereign and God is providential and God does not change and God has authority over everything, right? And so as we're reading through this passage, it's going to seem like, man, there is a contradiction in in the Bible. And so we really need to nail down what exactly Samuel means when he quotes God as saying, I regret that I have made Saul king. Now I go back and I, I look at the Hebrew and I'll do word studies and cool stuff like the stuff that doesn't really interest most people. And so I won't get into the like details of those word studies. Uh, but it is important for me to give you the Hebrew here. The word regret or repent or relent, depending on the translation you are reading, is translated from the Hebrew nahim. And nahim is a word that means regret. <laughs> it could also mean repent of and it could also mean relent from so it's translated pretty pretty clearly in the english version of the bible uh, now as we read through first samuel 15 and i i love first samuel chapter 15 because samuel actually takes the time to clarify exactly what he means when he refers to god regretting or repenting or Relenting. We read through chapter 15, and we won't read through the whole chapter this morning, but we get to verse 29. Look at verse 29 with me. This is so cool. Also, 
the glory of Israel, referring to God, God is the glory of Israel. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind. For he is not a man that he should change his mind. So whatever regret means in verse 11, it, it doesn't mean that God somehow changes his mind. And notice in verse 11, when God tells Samuel, speaking the word of the Lord, right? When God tells Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king. God doesn't say that he made a misstep. God doesn't say that if given the chance to do things again, he would do things another way. God doesn't tell us that he has sinned. God doesn't tell us that this wasn't part of his plan. God doesn't say any of that. When we read a word like regret, we sort of read all of those things into it. But then we read verse 29. God does not change his mind. God does not lie. Right? Then we know that whatever regret means in verse 11, it can't mean any of those things. God has not taken a misstep. God, if he could do it all over again, he wouldn't do it any differently, right? This decision was made from eternity and God does not change his mind. Everything happening here is purposeful. If it's not purposeful, then verse 11 contradicts verse 29. Now what's interesting here in verse 29 is when uh, God is described as not lying, not changing his mind, the word there that's translated change his mind is the same word that is translated regret in verse 11. Nahim. And so in one instance, God nahims that he made Saul king over Israel. And in another instance, uh, the text tells us that God does not nahim. And so this word, we have words like this in English, right? That can mean several different things at one time. And so it's hard to gain clarity when someone says like, I love pizza, but you know, I don't love pizza. And you kind of have to get, it's okay. We understand what is going on here. We understand how words like this are used. Um, One instance I regret in verse 11 refers to an emotive reaction. It's an emotional reaction. And in verse 29, it's all cognitive. Like God has determined this from before the foundation of the world. And we see God behaving this way within the context of his creation. When we get to verse 35, we see that Samuel also grieves over Saul and the word grieve there is the same word nahim that is used in verse 11 and so this regret from verse uh, 11 it's like a it's like a deep sadness an emotional grief like Saul's Saul's whole ministry it was it was prophesied beforehand it doesn't take God by surprise right Saul's degeneration in his life and in his morality and in his worship of, uh, of God and in his ministry as, as king, it doesn't take God by surprise. It has been determined, prophesied about from at least Genesis chapter 49, and we discovered that as we've been walking through the text. And what's going on here is we, we catch a glimpse of God's interaction with his creation in a very emotional way. I think oftentimes we're encouraged to think about God in, in like a, a deistic a deistic fashion. God created the world, He fashioned the world, He set the world in motion, He determined all things from before the foundation of the world. He elected His people from before the foundation of the world according to Ephesians chapters 1 and to write, and then we we stop there, and and as a reformed community or as a reformed Baptist church, that's where we tend to stop, and we don't think about God actually intimately engaging His church and His world and His creation in in a way that is imminent. And we get God's transcendence, and we spend all of our time talking about God's transcendence, and. And we forget that God is intimate with His creation within the context of time such that He feels great sadness even when Saul, who, who will remain a sinner according to God's words, who will be this ravenous wolf, even when Saul sins and even when Saul disobeys God's commands. So like as, as Christians, we, we, we want to strive to obey our Lord, right? 
And we picture, um, we picture God grieving when we sin. Or when we don't do the things that, that Scripture instructs us to do. Or, or when we come up with an excuse to stay away from the community of, of believers. But in this text, like Saul, he's a ravenous wolf. He, he is the epitome of what it means to be evil in the text. And from week to week, we've discovered that Saul is, is reprobate. He doesn't belong eternally to Jesus Christ, even though he is part of national Israel. And we have seen this as the story has unfolded. And still God grieves because of Saul's disobedience. And so I want to I like get this picture. God's emotion runs deep. His emotion runs deep as His people worship Him. You know, sometimes we make worship singing in church. We make it really cold. Like, okay, I'm going to sing to God and it's my duty before God. Do we not realize that since God's emotion is so deep, He takes great joy in our singing to Him and we can experience great joy through singing as a result? That's cool. And at the same time, we, we sin and God experiences an emotion called regret, deep sadness. Angst. God is an emotional well. And he, His emotion never runs dry. He's not a cold God who just, from the foundation of the world, transcendently selects a people for Himself and He's just there. That doesn't describe the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible experiences deep emotion. It's part of, part of who He is is have you ever wondered why as people we experience a great depth of emotion have you ever thought about that in light of the fact that we've been created in the image of god well, like we experience great emotion great distress great sadness great happiness great joy worry angst anticipation we experience a great depth of emotion anger and hatred and love. We experience all of these things and God has given us the ability, human beings as, as creatures on planet earth, the ability to experience a great depth of emotion that no other creature gets to experience. Right? Why do you think God has created people, His image in this way that we experience such a great depth of emotion? It is because God part of who he is or should i say who he is i don't know if it makes sense to say part of who god is since he is all of himself all the time <laughs> but who god is 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 emotional and so he fashions a creature in his own image humanity not just to be cognitive not just to be an intelligent creature not just to practice wisdom but to be an emotional creature because He is an emotional God. And He is all emotion, all the time. This is mind-boggling to me. This is one of the coolest things about God. And one of our elders, Albert, who is not here this morning, and you can give him a hard time about that later, please call him and say, you're an elder. And you're not. <laughs> no. But Albert will say, God is a, he is a simple God. And what he means by that is that God is all of who God is all the time from eternity past, right? Every decision that God makes within time, he has made from before the foundation of the world. He's not complicated. He's not always going back and forth. It just makes sense that God is like that, right? When God has spoken events that will take place from before the foundation of the world, it doesn't change. When God elects a people for himself from before the foundation of the world, it doesn't change, which means we can't lose our salvation because God doesn't change it's not about what we do. It's not about you know, our faults like, oh, if I don't do this, all of a sudden I'm going to lose my salvation. Or let me choose to leave salvation and somehow that works. No, if God doesn't change, the result is that things God does can't be changed, can't be undone because it's God's character as creator. And that should comfort us regarding the, the security we have in salvation. 
But then we think about God's emotion too. And that's what this verse gets at is God's emotion. And it's like, God, if, you know, this is true and God is simple God, He is experiencing all of this depth of emotion fully, love and, and hate and jealousy and angst and anger, wrathfulness, and regret, deep sadness, and joy, and happiness. He's experiencing all that all at once from eternity. Now what's cool to me is how this is revealed to us. Right. Well, God creates the world. Space and time begin with the Word of God, the creative Word of God. And throughout time, God is revealing His plan. All of the things that He has ordained, all of the decisions that He has made through time, He reveals that. It doesn't all just happen all at once. He's revealing that through time. And the same is true with God's emotion as He reveals His emotion to us. It is being revealed through time. And here we catch a, a glimpse of God's, God's sadness, His grief, when any person, not just, not just his children, not just his elect people, but when any person sins, even those who are reprobate, they're lost in sin. And we, you know, we have this picture of God who is waiting for someone to sin so he can zap them. It's not an accurate picture whatsoever, right? Or God who judges righteously, and he does he is the only righteous judge, and it is his responsibility to judge sin. But here we catch a glimpse of like the attitude that God has as he is judging sin. It is, it is deep sadness along with his anger and jealousy and wrathfulness. And this is, I think it shows us the great depth of God's love, right? Even for people who are reprobate and people who do not know him and will never come to know him like Saul. I mean, look at how long God is bearing with Saul through this process of, of, of degeneration that Saul is going through. And as, as Saul's sin continues to compound, continues to grow, and it will eventually you know, result in his death in 1 Samuel chapter 31. God experiences great sadness when we sin. Great sadness when we sin. Now often people will read this language and they will not explain this type of text well at all. And maybe you've heard it put this way because this became really popular way, a uh, really popular way to interpret the text somewhere down the line. Uh, somebody will say, oh, God is using the word regret here um, to help us to understand, to use human emotion to help us to understand what he is, what he is going through. And, and so God is anthropomorphizing himself to make himself more understandable to us. Um, look, we are created in God's image. He is not created in ours. There is a danger in making the claim that any part of Scripture is anthropomorphized or made like people in some way, right? There's a danger in doing that with the Bible, because it forces us to picture God as just a better me. And so if we're reading the text and we think that God is explaining himself using, you know, things about us just to relate to us or make himself relatable or whatever, the danger is, and we call it narcissus, reading myself into the text, the danger is we just see God as a better me. And God is not just a better Andrew, and God is not just a better anyone sitting here, right? God is God. And so when God says something like, I regret, that is truth. And He has designed us in such a way in His image that we are able to at least try to understand this sort of terminology, this sort of thing that God is feeling, and we have been made in God's image. We have not fashioned God in our image. And so as we read the Bible, we know that God has described himself clearly, perspicuously, so clear that it stands out to us. And it's not because he's using 
you know, anthropomorphized language, a good way to describe anthropomorphism is you look at a car and you see the headlights and you see the grill and what does that look like? It looks like a face, right? That's, that's anthropomorphized. We anthropomorphize the car. God doesn't do that with himself, right? No, he describes himself as who he is and since we've been made in his image, fashioned in his image, we can... We can at least strive to understand what God is talking about here. And here his regret, his great emotion, it's represented by our great emotion. Now, our emotion is imperfect, right? We are sinners and we are unrighteous. We are not God. We are God's image. And so our emotion only reflects God's emotion. We don't experience it perfectly as he experiences emotion or as he is emotion. And our emotions often rule us. I'm tired. I'm not going to church this morning. Our emotions often rule us. I am so angry and I have to post something on Facebook. Our emotions often rule us. God's emotions do not rule him. They're part of his essential nature, right? Or they are his essential nature along with his knowledge along with every other attribute that God has. He is not ruled by his emotions, but he experiences them. And as we see in verse 29 here in 1 Samuel 15, God does not change his mind in response to the emotions that he feels, right? Saul is still king, even though it makes God sad. Saul has already chosen David to replace him. That's already part of his plan at this point in the story. God has already determined that Saul will be a ravenous wolf. He did that at least as early as Genesis chapter 49. So God isn't changing his mind. He's not going back and redoing it. Right? But still he experiences great sadness. And so we learn something about our God here. Something that we don't often talk about because it sounds weird to talk about an emotional God. But God is he's very emotive. And He transcends over His creation. But He also engages His creation intimately and dynamically. And so when we sin, God responds with sadness. And when we obey, God responds with great joy. And when we sing to Him, God sings with us. It's cool. Cool to see this side of our Lord. Cool to see this side of the God we worship. The second part of verse 11, And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. The Hebrew word for distressed here is not the same word that is used to describe God's emotion. The word for regret is nahim. The word for distressed is yehir. And it's a different word. This word refers to more of a hatred and an anger that Samuel is feeling in his imperfect nature. The, the emotion that God feels in this instance has not translated perfectly to Samuel. Samuel is God's prophet, right? If anybody was going to get this emotion right, it's going to be God's prophet, Samuel. And Samuel, it doesn't even translate perfectly to what Samuel is feeling. Samuel gets angry at Saul. God is saddened. Samuel, angry, spiteful, hateful, almost. And that's what this word communicates, was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Now what this reveals about Samuel is Samuel still had some growing up to do, as do we all. There still needed to be some sanctification in Samuel's life. But also what we see here, because we know that, that Samuel is a man after God's own heart. We know that Samuel is... God's prophet. We know that Samuel is, is elect. He will be saved. He will be with God forever. And the scriptures have even told us in this narrative that Samuel will do all that is in God's heart and God's mind, and he will speak every word that God speaks, and he will do so with perfection, never making mistake in his, in his speech. So we know all that from the story so far. And so what we know here is that there is some way in which God's emotion 
translates to God's people, even if we experience it in an imperfect way, right? Samuel cares about the thing that God cares about. Saul's sin, just as it has affected God emotionally, affects Samuel emotionally. People who are called by God's name, who love God, care about the things that God cares about. What moves God in an emotional sense should move us too. We don't have the type of foresight that God has. We won't experience it perfectly. Maybe what makes God sad makes us angry or hatred or, or, or hateful or spiteful. Maybe we have some growing up to do concerning our emotions. But if something bothers God, it will bother the people of God. And if something causes God to rejoice and sing over His people, it ought to cause the people of God to rejoice and sing to God and sing to one another. And God's emotion, what He is feeling, it impacts the people of God, the people who care about what God cares about. Verses 12 through 15, self-justification. And Saul, he's just going downhill, going downhill. In the previous passage, God has clearly instructed Saul, take them all out. Kill all of the Amalekites, including their king and their livestock. I'm done with them. God's, I'm done with them. Kill them. This is my explicit instruction to you, Saul. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. This is verse 12. And it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, not a monument to himself, a monument for himself. The monument was to God. He set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. So Saul, he has, he has taken the livestock from the Amalekites. And he did not slaughter the livestock when he went to war against the Amalekites. Instead, he has brought the livestock, the choice meats from the Amalekites, and he is going to offer them up as sacrifices to God against God's instruction. What we are about to read deals entirely with worship, right? Entirely with worship. The reason churches are empty today is because people have a misplaced worship. We worship other stuff. The reason society seems to be going downhill is because people worship stuff other than God. And so this text speaks greatly into our current society, into our current culture. The problems that we're going to see in this text, God talking about what is evil in his sight, it all has to do with misplaced worship. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Verse 13, Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Remember, Samuel's fuse is lit. He is angry. And Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. It's not quite the response that Samuel, I'm sure, was looking for. I have carried out the command of the Lord. And Saul is celebrating this great victory according to God's instruction. And he blatantly disobeyed God. Samuel's fuse is not only lit now, but it's getting shorter and shorter and shorter. But Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears? Why do I hear the livestock of the Amalekites? Saul you were supposed to kill them. And the lowing of the oxen, which I hear. Verse 15, Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. Samuel, why are you so mad? We're worshiping the Lord our God. 
look, God has given pretty clear instructions to Saul through Samuel. And we begin to sense this pull in the text, and we're going to see this explicitly stated as we continue to walk through 1 Samuel, that God desires obedience more than sacrifice. That God desires obedience more than singing. That obedience to God is is way more important than having a spiritual experience. That our being obedient to God is is more important than some spiritual high or dopamine drip that trip that's that's brought about by by the praise settings in most churches. Right? God cares much more about obedience. Obedience above all else. This is the best worship to God. And God, here through His Word, He starts He just starts to get us some, some real stuff because how, how often do we glorify some spiritual high or spiritual experience and think, oh, that's what I need to feel like a good Christian and to feel like to feel like I'm I'm saved is is to have a great experience. And, and here, Saul is worshiping the Lord. He is convinced that he is honoring the Lord, but he hasn't obeyed God. And here he's justifying his own actions. Like, like he doesn't even grasp what's happening. Right? I've disobeyed God, but it's okay because we're having such a great worship experience. We're sacrificing the animals that we kept. And maybe we also tend to justify our own actions, beliefs, thoughts, behaviors, the way that we worship, the traditions we cling to, the new stuff we try and introduce because it seems cool. Because it will attract a crowd. Maybe we justify those things too. And maybe maybe we, along with the rest of the, the Christian community, people who really love Jesus, ought to think about this, especially in a Western context. Verses 16 through 20. What is evil in the sight of the Lord according to God? Verse 16. Then Samuel said to Saul, Wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he, Saul, said to him, Speak. Say so. What's on your mind, Samuel? Samuel said, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel? You didn't do this, Saul. You didn't gain your position. This wasn't by any work of your own. God selected you for this purpose. And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners the Amalekites and fight against them until they are exterminated. And and God didn't leave any, any room for interpretation there. It was clear. Kill them all. Verse 19. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Did you, did you catch that? Saul, he's convinced that he was obedient. He's convinced that he was doing the right thing, even though Samuel was very clear, perspicuous. This is so clear, you can't mistake what the Lord is telling you to do. Saul, again, he doesn't even grasp what is, what is going on here. He has disobeyed God's order and he has worshipped now in a way that does not glorify God and he has justified himself and he has justified his method of worship by saying, I'm doing this for our God. How many, how many churches around the world are saying this? How many messages do we hear that you can worship any way that you want to and God is okay with it all as long as you are worshiping God? Verse 
How often do we hear that any method of worship is just okay, like God hasn't given specific instructions in, in His Word for the way that we worship Him and for the things that we do in the context of a body of believers. And we won't get into those specifics this morning because we don't have time, but as we walk through the Scriptures, those, those things will eventually become clear to us as we grow up in the faith and in our understanding and in Christian practice, Right? God is not just okay with any method of worship. God instructs and He desires obedience. We can't get around that in the text, right? To obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than singing. To obey is better than the worship that we try to offer. Obedience is what God desires. Verse 20, Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek. Does he not realize what he's saying here? I did obey the Lord, but then I disobeyed the Lord. I did obey the Lord and I brought back Amalek who whom God instructed me to kill with a sword in battle. I've brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Even though Samuel's explanation was was clear, again, we see, he's just unable to grasp what is happening. Unable to understand the instruction of God. Now, we don't want to... We don't want to get too bent out of shape and like be guilty of preaching some sort of works-based righteousness, right? Because it's not what the Bible gets at. The Scripture has already told us, this story has already explained that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And, and by faith, then, we desire to become obedient servants to God. Works follow faith, not the other way around, right? We've already seen that in the text leading up to this point. What it means for Saul is that he has no faith, He's unable to grasp what it means to really be obedient to God and he is justifying his own actions which we've seen in the text have been entirely self-centered. And he's been concerned about you know, what he's going to gain from God, a victory. He's going to gain victory by worshiping God and that's not how worship works. He's got it flipped, Right? He's convinced that he is being obedient, obedient to God. And I think this is the evil that God refers to. Saul has committed great evil. And it it doesn't have to do with like the specifics of Saul's action. It has to do with with the big picture and the heart of the matter, right? Saul is self-centered in his worship. Saul is concerned with having a spiritual experience rather than obedience to God. And this, according to God, is the evil that Saul will continue in until the day that Saul dies. I told you this morning was going to be joyful. I wonder if I wonder if there is evil in the pew today. Maybe not here, but speaking in generalities, right? Evil in the pew today, in the church seat today. Where people are going into churches and hoping, praying, just to have that spiritual experience, to have that dopamine trip. Like, I can tell you exactly how to have a spiritual experience, whether you know Christ or not. Are you ready? Are you ready for this? Whether you know Christ or not, I can tell you exactly how to have a spiritual experience and you don't have to go to a Christian church. You don't have to go to a Protestant church. You don't have to go to a Catholic church. You can go to a Mormon church. You can go to a Jehovah's Witness church. You can go to a mosque. You can go spend a day with Buddhist monks. You can have this spiritual experience. You go to a place where the temperature is just right and the mood lighting is just perfect. And you empty your mind. And you have good music. 
and it touches the heartstrings, and you've had a spiritual experience. I'll take a walk through the woods. I'll go hunting. I'll take a walk through the woods. I'll go to the lake and I'll go fishing and I'll be by myself. I'll drive down the road. Just take a drive. You can have a spiritual experience just by doing those things. Anybody can have a spiritual experience. Not everybody cares about being obedient to God. You can have a spiritual experience when some spiritual guru says some words that don't really make a lot of sense, but they sound deep. You know what I'm saying? And you can have a spiritual experience. Anybody can do that. Anybody can have an epiphany, a spiritual epiphany, or, or realize something they haven't realized before. But only the people of God care about obeying God. Only the people of God care about being in church for the correct reasons. Only the people of God care about giving of themselves in this way rather than coming and expecting to, to be served, to gain something from the, from the worship experience. Only the people of God care about obeying God. And only the people of God care about the things that God cares about and desire to contribute in, in that way. Now, if you have defined your faith by your spiritual experiences, I just didn't feel that close to God today, or I don't feel like I'm saved. Or, man, the Holy Spirit is moving in here today because the music was great. My heart really goes out to you. And in fact, I'm like, I'm about to start crying. Let me hold back these tears so you guys don't have to see a grown man wearing a fa-la-la-la llama jacket crying. No, like my, my heart goes out to you. Because the very thing that God refers to as evil in this passage in the life of Saul is the very way in which people define their Christianity. It's about a spiritual experience. When all that is is just a release of dopamine in the brain. It makes you feel good. And God wants to get at real stuff. If you, want a, if, you, if you want a life based on spiritual experiences, Christianity is not for you because God takes us through some hard stuff. <laughs> okay? And He does that on purpose. And he does that for our, for our growth. And we experience this depth of emotion. And we experience great anxiety and great worry and great sadness, but also great happiness and great joy. It is an abundant life and everything that an abundant life, real life, not this ethereal, weird, spiritual thing that we've tried to define, but we don't exactly know what it is. Real life. And God takes us through that for His glory and for our good. And it is amazing. And if, and if you don't have that sort of life, oh, I, I pray that you come to know Christ. Because <laughs> it is way better than any kind of spiritual experience. And it is longer lasting and there is security in it. And God takes this heart of stone that needs to be you know, stimulated somehow with experiences and feelings and then we become slaves to our, our feelings and and over. He takes this heart of stone and he removes that and he breaks it up and he puts in a heart of flesh so that we can live a real life and get at real things, feel real stuff, think about real stuff. And go through the fire of this earth so that we can be prepared, sanctified, matured, raised up from infants to adults ready for the kingdom of heaven that's what God is doing if you don't experience that I pray that you come to know Christ that is where our hope is that is where the good news of this message is to take all of that depression that we just talked about and we think about the cross of Jesus Christ that Jesus took all that upon himself on Calvary on the cross so that we could experience life and so that we could follow God in a way that looks more like David's life and ministry than like Saul's. And that's what we're transitioning into. We'll be transitioning into that within the next couple of chapters and in the new year.
So brothers and sisters, we think about these things. Are we, are we more concerned about obeying Christ or about having a spiritual experience? Do we love Christ, our King, or do we love a spiritual high, a dopamine trip? Do we only care about what we get, the benefits of some sort of spirituality, or do we, or do we care about the things God cares about because we love Him? And the only way we can love Him is because He first loved us. He must be the one to awaken that within us that has not been awakened in Saul. It's awakened in David. He loves us, then we love Him, and we come to care about the things He cares about, and we begin to care more about obedience than having some spiritual experience. Thank you.